Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Contractor Evolution. My guest on the show today is Dan Antonelli, author of Branded, Not Blanded, and the founder and creative director of KickCharge Creative, a New Jersey-based agency that builds more home service brands than anyone in the world. With a passion for advertising and communications, Dan started hand-painting signs as a teenager. Now, 27 years after founding his agency, he and his team of 20 build the biggest brands in the home service space, including A1 Garage, Gettle and Absolute Airflow, just to name a few. Now, doing an episode on the formula for an amazing vehicle wrap has been near the top of my wish list, and I finally found the guy. So today's conversation is about outdoor adver advertising in general, but more specifically, the five rules that all contractors and home service business owners need to follow when designing a vehicle wrap that pops and drives results. So whether you use KickCharge or a different branding agency, listen to his insights and avoid the branding mistakes that so many blue-collar businesses make. If you're not yet subscribed, you should be. Hit that button below. And without further ado, let's talk to Dan Antonelli. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Hey, Dan, welcome to Contractor Evolution. It's really great to have you. What's up, brother? How you doing? I'm well. I'm well. So I, I want, um, I'd love for you to just tell us a bit about your story. There's this really cute chapter at the beginning of the book where it's I, I, like you describe yourself basically as a kid hand painting signs. So this whole journey you've yep. been on started a while ago. Do you want to maybe take us through it? Yeah, it's 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 kind of wild because it's like 40 years later or 37 years later and I'm still sort of doing it. But yeah, I started out actually hand lettering um, signs and, and actually trucks mainly. I was doing truck lettering um, and I worked at a couple of sign shops and we were doing a lot of work for our contractors and lettering vans and things like that. And, and I just really fell in love with doing that. Um, just a lot of satisfaction I used to take and seeing one of my vans drive by and get excited about that. Uh, but my folks thought it would be better for me to go to college and not be um, a sign painter. So um, I went to college and I actually got a degree in communications and advertising. So I learned a lot about, you know, topics related to branding, topics related to advertising, topics related to marketing. And then I was sort of able to apply a lot of those things that I learned there um, throughout later opening the, the the company and doing marketing for other companies. So it was actually a really good thing. I, I feel like that my parents didn't want me to be a sign painter. Um, and I guess it sort of worked out. <laughs> it looks like it has. Do you remember, do you remember what it was um, in those early days that kind of drew you to it? Um, I mean, just just seeing my work be out there, I think I just you would take a lot of pride in that and, and knowing I did that. Like, so, you know, I, I know contractors sometimes joke about driving by neighborhood and say, I put the AC in that. I right. did the roof on that house. And it's kind of a similar thing. So there's a lot of pride that I really was able to get from that. And um, I just was really passionate about it, too. And I, and I remember just feeling so fortunate and blessed to work under um, a really, really skilled sign painter who I'm actually still really good friends with, which is just amazing. Like he came to my agency when we opened up our new building here and he, he actually came and it was just great to see him again. Actually, I talk about him in the beginning of the book and um, he really taught me like this standard of um, everything that he wanted to come out of that shop to be at this high level. Um, and so that's something that I've always really took to heart in terms of the level and the quality of the work that we're responsible for um, and always maintaining that really high level of excellence that is sort of the standard for which we believe in. The book, by the way, guys, if you're listening, is called Branded, Not Blanded. I've read it. Um, it's a really fun read. It's super visual. I think you did a really remarkable job taking what is – a pretty technical skill set and making it pretty accessible accessible to the reader. And I, I was like, this guy has to come on the podcast because 
I, I just, it's just been an empty box I've been waiting to check. I'm like, I want to find the guy who's the absolute expert in vehicle wraps. And so anyway, I found you through Tommy Mello and we've got this scheduled and I'm, and I'm excited we did. Can you just at the outset here, explain why you're so bullish on vehicle wraps and what makes these such a worthwhile investment? So I love the idea of utilizing wraps to communicate brand, to communicate brand promise. And I love the opportunity that it presents because most are done so poorly that when you actually do something innovative, something disruptive in any given market, there's so much more effective than almost any other medium available. So you could look at any given market. And when we brand a company, that's one of the first things we do is look at the competitive space. What are the brand colors being used? What are the approaches being used? And often it's just shocking how poor some of these other companies are branded. Um, and I love that because that just, again, represents and screams opportunity. Because if I can do something unique, something disruptive, something that delivers brand promise um, and is brand centric. And that's the other big part of it is is just obviously making sure that the vehicle wraps is driven from the brand. Um, then I know that we can do something that's really going to push the needle forward and, and deliver ROI. And it's the most effective medium also in terms of impressions, meaning that there isn't a single other medium, advertising medium that delivers the same number of impressions for a lower cost than truck wraps. You talk a lot about in the book this idea of proximity. Do you? And I think that's a good thing to pack in here as we're just flushing this out in the early stage. What, what does it do? A, you know, talk about the impact this has on the local neighborhood, where you live, where you operate. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the stats in the book that I bring up is the idea that roughly 80 to 85% of every home consumer does not know the name of a contractor to, to choose when they're ready to get service, right? So the idea that they're then relying on Google, so they'll go onto Google and they'll type in um, heating repair Washington, New Jersey, or heating repair near me. And that's because they don't know the name of a of a company within their community that they feel comfortable with or that they remember seeing or seeing on their neighbor's driveway. So what we try to do and what we've seen happen obviously is is when you build an effective brand and then you implement it on the vehicle, it's those impressions within the community that help instill trust with that consumer. So, oh, I saw Mrs. Jones had a service van on the on their their vehicle. It looks like a nice company. You now remember all these impressions that are being made are are leaving that consumer with an idea of whether or not you're honest, trustworthy, deliver good value, um, you know, perform a good service. Those are all the things that the brand is trying to control, right? So, so making sure that they continually to see those vehicles within that community helps make the brand sticky, right? So the idea of being sticky in their minds is more so so that they can type in your branded name in Google as opposed to a generic search query. Like, I want you to type in my name. If I can show this vehicle in this community repeatedly, then I win, right? Then, then I don't have to rely quite so much on how much I have to spend on PPC and LSA and all those other things because someone's actually just typing in my branded name. So what do you need for that? Like obviously, you know, the book talks about you need a good name, you need a good brand, you need to have a vehicle that delivers all those things. Um, but that's really the, the the thought process behind it. And we've obviously seen amazing results in terms of ROI, um, investing in the vehicles and how it affects all the rest of the marketing. I, I wanted to ask you about the named searches because what happens with marketing is sort of like you know, attribution becomes tricky, as you know. And so it's sometimes difficult to pinpoint, hey, is this working or not? Are we getting the leads from the wrap? Are we getting them from the neighbor? Like I, it's we just our systems aren't sophisticated enough to tell. One thing that seems to me like a reliable indicator would be those named searches. Do you notice <laughs> post rebrand spikes in Google's named searches of companies. So they're not, they're no longer typing in Michigan heating service. They're typing in the name of the company. Do you guys see a spike in that post rebrand usually? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think the book has a couple of examples of basically the, the, the number of searches 
and then suddenly it's a huge huge spike like it's absurd sometimes like what actually happens but um you know we definitely see a huge increase in the number of branded searches that are happening because you do something that's disruptive you do something that doesn't feel like what everyone else is doing it's the same reason why you know we talk in the book if you're a heating and air guy why you don't want to have a logo that uses red and blue arrows because everyone else is using red and blue arrows. Like, why would I remember that? Why would that stick in that consumer's minds as something unique about your company that I'm going to be able to remember later on, right? So that's the other piece of it too, is the recognition later on, because at the people confuse and they think that the truck wrap is meant as a call to action. And it's not really meant for a call to action. The same way billboards aren't traditionally really meant to be calls to action. They're really... First and foremost, they're really dedicated to the idea of brand building. Mm -hmm. So repetition of the brand will help that consumer remember it when they need service, right? But of course, you've got to do something to make it so they actually will remember it. So if you're doing something that blends in with what everyone else is doing, it's less likely that, that Mrs. Jones, and she's likely the one that's making the call, is ever going to remember your company name. It's an awareness piece more than anything, right? This mm -hmm. is not a uh, – it, it is not direct response marketing at that level. You may have that in other parts of your brand environment and your marketing strategy. But when we're talking about vehicle wraps, it is very top of funnel. It is very awareness first. And that obviously would have – that would make some changes to the way that you design the wrap, which, you know, with that explicit goal in mind, there'd be things you do differently as a result, which we'll get to in a sec. I want to circle back to something you said a second ago, uh, which is that most of them suck. So we'll try to be nice, but like also let's just be real. Like why do most wraps suck? Um, most of them really suck. As the, the primary reason most of them suck is because the brand sucks. So you will never build an effective truck wrap with a poor brand. Like mm -hmm. it's just never going to happen. Like we get asked all the time, hey, we love your truck wraps. Here's my logo. Like, can you design my truck wraps? And 95% of the time, the answer is no, I can't because I'm not going to take your money to design something that will never work. Like that doesn't, that doesn't fly for me. Like I'm not going to do it because I know it's never going to actually deliver value. It's never going to actually be memorable. There's too many fundamental problems with it. So you can't ever get to the point of having an effective truck wrap without having an effective brand. Like it sounds painfully obvious um, sure. to me at least. <laughs> But it's really, if you look outside, it's really not obvious at all to a lot of people. Um, and so um, that becomes something that you have to really look inward at and you have to be able to recognize the challenges of what you have. Um, and then you have to decide whether or not it's something you want to endeavor to to fix, basically. It's, it's going to improve so many other things besides just the truck wrap. It's going to improve your culture. It's going to improve your ability to recruit people. It's going to improve your ability to command higher average tickets. Like there's a whole host of things that come along with having a really good brand besides obviously having an effective truck wrap. Um, but you can't get there without it. Like it's just not going to happen. And that's why so many of these on the road are just done so poorly because there's, there's flaws in them that can't be overcome. And sometimes they're actually amplified on a truck. Right. If that makes sense. It, it totally does. So so then let, let's click in on that and, and go a bit deeper. That's actually a good segue into this thing I wanted to go through with you. There's there's a chapter in the book where you go through sort of the five rules. And and the first, the first, as you just said, is start with a great brand. So then, then I'm left wondering, why is good branding such a challenge for so many entrepreneurs and home services in particular? Are they getting bad advice? Are they just uninformed? Are they not ideal client centric? Is it a combination? Like what's what's kind of your take on the average kind of archetypal home service or, or blue collar business brand package out there right now? And, and why, why is it so hard? I think it's almost all of those things. It's it's definitely a lot of bad advice. There's some really, really bad advice given in this space. One of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I feel like, oh, my God, there really isn't someone that's talking about this. There isn't really a reference book that someone can read. Like if everybody read my book, honestly, before you started your business, you would save thousands and thousands of dollars later on because you would have all the right knowledge about how to actually do that, whether you used – 
any other company, you would at least be able to understand the fundamentals of what goes into it. So you have that. Um, and, and a lot of times, too, it's just not something that they're very they give a lot of thought to, you know, they're, they're maybe bootstrapping this startup. They're trying to figure out how to really get that first van, how to get out there. And the investment to make and good branding from day one sometimes is beyond their reach. It doesn't mean you still can't understand the fundamentals of how to do it um, and do the best you can with it. But you see a lot of problems even with naming, like, oh, my God, like I feel like the naming chapter in the book is probably the largest chapter in the whole book. Um, and that is a huge, huge issue with home service uh, branding because the naming is something you will constantly be working to overcome because you didn't do it right from day one. Talk right? about so some of those naming mistakes. That is another mistakes. thing that I wanted to just talk about in yeah. the book for sure. Talk about some of those <clears throat> naming mistakes. What what kind of examples are really prevalent to you? Like you know, they, just, they just call it the wrong thing. What's, what's obvious to your eyes? Um, last name brands. Really, really challenging to ever get to be sticky in a consumer's mind. Brand, uh, brand names that use initials like AJS Heating and Air. Horrible, horrible. Like really, really challenging to ever be sticky in a consumer's mind. Uh, names that are limiting like affordable or budget or economy. Um, those are challenging if you ever think you're going to get paid a premium dollar for your work because you're already delivering a brand promise that suggests you should be the cheapest, right? So those are some fundamental things that, that you see. So um, always thinking about, you know, what does the brand name say to the consumer if they knew nothing else about your company? So when you have a last name brand, unless you've been in that community for 50 years and everybody knows the name, maybe at that point there's a semblance of brand promise. But if a name can deliver a brand promise without any other ancillary marketing, that's ideal. That's that's really what you want to do. Um, there's a concept I learned from another brand person years ago, which is um, it's a pretty simple idea. It is more expensive to market and do lead gen and amplify a company on the back of a bad brand because you're at the center of it, you have the wrong offer, you have the wrong look, feel, everything. And so, yes, you, it's not like you can't get leads. It's not like you can't grow. It just costs you more to get them because this, the hearth, the centerpiece of it is wrong. What's mm -hmm. your take on that philosophy around, around it being caught more costly over the long term to do it that way? Yeah, well, hundred percent. I mean, you know, I sort of talk about in the book the idea that um, the most expensive logo you'll ever buy is one you paid the least amount for, and that sounds sort of weird, right? But that's because all your other marketing is now not going to work as well as it could because you're working to overcome the inherent flaws in the foundation of your branding, right? So we we talk about the wheel model, right? So in the center of that wheel, your marketing wheel is your logo. And then the spokes are all the things integrating that logo, your, your, your social, your web, your uniforms, your truck wraps, like all those things. And yes, you can spin that wheel if that hub isn't, isn't perfectly round, but it's going to take a hell of a lot more effort. And, and that just translates into a hell of a lot more money. So you can market the hell out of a really poor brand and get it to work. But the idea is I want our clients to be spending the least amount of money possible on their marketing. And the way to do that is to have a more effective brand. You know, so so Roy Williams is a great, um, really smart guy in the advertising world. I think the quote I have from him in the book is overspending on marketing is the tax once one pays for being unremarkable. Right. So just again, just thinking about it from that perspective. Um, and there's there's hundreds of really, really large companies that are overspending on their marketing because they have an unremarkable brand. Right. So, again, if you're a little guy in a market with big fish, how do you do something that is more remarkable and that will become more sticky than these guys that all, all they're doing is just banging money? at a crap brand, right? And they're getting by and they're doing okay. But when you hear guys talking, hey, we're spending 10, 12%, or you need to spend 10 or 12% if you want to grow, like, I'm sorry, but I call bullshit on that, right. you know, because you don't need to spend that much more money if you have a better brand. Like I have guys that have gone from 2.5 to 16 million in four and a half years on a 4% spend. So you want to tell me how the hell did they do that in a really, really competitive market? 
when everyone else is saying, oh, you got you got to spend 10 percent, you got to spend 12 percent. Well, yeah, I know why you're spending 12 percent, because your brand is crappy. That's a really, really compelling those numbers you just shared, you know, 2.5 to 16 or whatever on you know, a few percent, four percent spend on marketing is like that. The, the, the proof is right there in the pudding. So then the flip side of this coin would be like. What are Dan Antonelli's kind of like fundamental principles for great branding? And I'm saying, you know, you've written a couple books on this. So I realize this is a very big question I'm asking you. But if you were like in a short elevator ride with someone and you could give them, I don't know, the four things or the eight things or whatever, you were just like, these are absolutely fundamental traits of great branding in home services. What are some things that you really feel are, yeah, are our pillars of that? Yeah, I mean, definitely think differently about it, right? So the, the 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 interesting thing is that when home service owners think about branding, they think that they should be doing something that everyone else is doing because that's very comfortable to them. That makes sense to them because they could look in their environment and they could see all their biggest competitors and kind of what they're doing. And that's a very, very safe strategy. And it's a very comforting strategy if you are the owner because you see them and what they're doing and yeah, that seems like that should work. That should make sense. But it's also really not looking at it from the right perspective. You want to think about what can you do to actually not look like what everyone else is doing in your market. And 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 I got to say like this that like that takes guts because it's it feels like you're doing something that's contrary to what everyone else is doing. Like it almost feels like this is wrong. This doesn't make any sense. Like I've had clients say, "Dan, this brand doesn't look like it's 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 a heating and air conditioning company." And I'm like, perfect. That's awesome because I don't want it to look like every other heating and air conditioning company. I, otherwise, why would that consumer ever remember it? And the other thing, too, to keep in mind is so many owners want to build brands that they personally like. Right. I have to love my own brand. And of course, I don't want to build a brand that you don't like, but I'm not as concerned with what you like because you're not the person buying the service. Mrs. Jones is. She's age 40 to 60. She's got two kids. She lives in a house. She's got a dog, you know, whatever. That's the demographic that I care about. So you got to change the mindset as far as I got to build a brand that's all about me, right? I got to love my own brand. Well, wouldn't you rather have the people buying your services love your brand? I guarantee you if they love your brand and the money that goes along with it, you're going to be really happy at the end of that. So like, you know, just remember who the audience is. It's not, it's not you. You're not the audience Mm -hmm. unless you fit into that demographic. Okay. So I always try to say, remember who you're selling to build brands that appeal to that audience. Um, and think about the brand from something that's different. I know that was a probably really long elevator ride that we just went through, but <laughs> no, it's they're great points. You can't. It's like you can't hate the brand. You don't want to have something that feels like a no. real departure from who you are. And I'm sure you have those meetings early on with the occasional client who goes, "Man, I get what you're going for here. Can we? You know, it's going this way. Can we bring it back a little bit this way? Because I'd feel a little bit more at home within it. Whatever. So I, you're kind of looking for this. Uh, if it's a Venn diagram, you're kind of looking for this this middle part where it does both really well you mentioned something about the buyer what you know what research have you done on the who's make like you, you mentioned you know her name is whatever she's between 40 and something she's got like is it the case that the majority of I've heard this before in other places but I'm curious what your research or insight is is it the case that more that most of the decision making process most of the buying decisions around uh, home services and, and work done in the home is done by women in that demo. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's like 70 to 80% of all phone calls originate from a female demographic that are making the initial contact with that home service company. Mm-hmm. So these really macho, masculine, in-your-face brands with sort of like the tattoo-style lettering and it's called like metal militia you know, contracting, whatever. I'm making it up. You see them. You yeah. see them around. That right. is, that's an example yeah. of someone who's just done it. A li- it's sort of like I want this brand to feel like me, and they've completely forgotten who's right. actually who's actually writing the checks. Yeah, and that's a great point because I actually recently heard a stat that said something to the effect that 80 percent of every home service company, I, I'm sorry, every 80 percent of every home service consumer 
has a negative impression of a contractor. Okay. So we talk in the book about consumer bias. We talk about the fact that you want to build a brand that speaks to that bias, right? So they're already afraid of who's coming to their home. They're afraid they may get ripped off. They're afraid they may not be treated um, honestly in terms of the work and the scope. Um, and so how do you try to hit those um, biases dead on with your branding? How do you have that consumer believe something about the experience they may get before you actually arrive and ring the doorbell. So that, that in a nutshell, like that's what branding is supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be trying to control what they feel about your company before you even get the opportunity to ring the doorbell. That's a really interesting comment. I, I think a lot of that kind of like that fear, that perception, I think a lot of that is somewhat unwarranted in the sense that they heard from a buddy from a buddy that someone ripped them off mm -hmm. or whatever. And you have these sort of like almost urban myths about the con like I, you know, in my little bubble in the Breakthrough Academy world, like I'm very confident saying like that is not you know, anywhere near the type of business that, that is run in our network. And I think, and I do think as well that, 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 that perception is changing, has changed quite a bit, but it is something to be it aware has. of nonetheless, yeah. where you are on some level and in some markets and certainly in some sub industries fighting an uphill battle where that first impression is concerned. You're kind of already playing defense because they've exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and that's why you want to lead in with as much positivity as you can. So that all starts from the first impression that the brand gives. So they've seen the truck. Okay, maybe they then investigate a little bit more. Maybe they go to the website at that point. All these impressions are leaving her with an idea of who this company is. That's really okay? interesting. You and, know what? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I, um, one of the things I've noticed – and by the way, for you listeners, I'm going to leave a link to this web page on Dan's site, which shows you like the before and afters of these. You can scroll through them and you can actually just see what it looks like pre-rebrand and post-rebrand with the wrap. It's a really cool little tool. But one of the things I've noticed about your – because you there's, there's a big enough body of work from Kick Charge now where you can kind of start to see their formula. And one of the things I've noticed – is it's bright, it's often bright, vibrant colors. And there's there's a mascot or a character a lot of the time that's like super upbeat, like very smiley, very kind mm -hmm. of like, there's some, that's a consistent pattern across a lot of the projects that you've done. And I wonder if that kind of ties into to the playing defense, but you're really wanting to be in your face about the upbeatness early on in that brand impression. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we we do it for whatever reason. I think our mascots get more publicity or more press than our non-mascot based brands. So we do a fair amount of both, but I will say that um, mascots, when done well, are also forming that connection, uh, forming that empathy with that particular consumer. Um, and you could also leverage mascots in so many other ways in terms of your your marketing. Uh, like, for example, we have clients that get their mascots made into a physical mascot and then they go to a home show and the parents want to take pictures with that mascot. And and those are connections that you can make that are sometimes hard to make with a more like corporate type of brand. So so those are all ways sometimes in which the mascot helps deliver brand promise, helps create that connection. And listen, you, you know, people forget too, like you you walk down because I've heard people say, oh my God, mascots are dead or mascots are, are overplayed. And of course you have to be careful about whatever market you're in and, and if it's saturated or not saturated or how many other people are doing sure. it. And we always want to make sure that you're doing something that feels unique and fresh, but just walk down the cereal aisle. And look at how many brands are using mascots. Um, look at all the consumer packaging that is mascot based. This isn't a new concept. This isn't like all of a sudden now, like mascot branding is something that that we just invented and decided to use for home service. This has been around for like 100 years. OK, so we know the, 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 the psychology behind mascot branding and how it affects consumer behavior. Um, the other thing that you going back to the five rules and just like talking about wraps specifically right now, now that yep. you've kind of flushed out brand stuff, you're very emphatic about not using photos. Do you, do you want to mm -hmm. maybe unpack why that is? Yeah, hundred percent because photos don't represent brands. That's why. 
So you want to put a photo of a condenser unit on the side of your HVAC truck because train is going to co-op you and give you 50% of the money to get your brand wrap? Well, terrific. Now driving by, I see that there's a condenser unit. I have to hope that the consumer knows that the condenser unit is actually representing something for a heating and air conditioning company. Um, and maybe I do. Um, but now I've got this big image of this this air conditioning unit on, and that comes at the expense of my brand, not in support of it. So it means I can't make my logo bigger. It also means that sometimes by representing one specific brand, Mrs. Jones believes that that's the only brand you service, right? So the whole idea that I'm going to use my co-op dollars, so and, and all they want me to do is put the logo on the side and maybe have a picture of a condenser unit. In theory, that all sounds great because, oh my God, I'm saving so much money. But now you've just eliminated a portion of potentially your your audience because they may think that that's all you service mm. or having the picture of a, a technician that isn't represented or or a part of the actual company right so so why why is this person featured on the side of the van what does that actually mean to me uh if it's just a generic you know guy there well who, who is he like wh wh why would i ever remember or associate that generic guy with your brand specifically Right. right. So, again, that's just another thing that, that doesn't actually relate to your brand uniquely. It relates to other things. So I always want the wraps to be 100 percent about your brand only. I will never put a manufacturer brand name on a vehicle because, again, like I said, it alienates a whole bunch of the audience who think that that's all you service. It's a better it's a better deal for them than it is for you. And that's probably why oh, yeah, they 100%. do it. That's why they offer yeah. it on mass. Right. And, and what I tell them is, listen, it's great that you've got the co-op funds. Just take that same money and run a dedicated, you know, PPC campaign for their specific sure. model that they're rebating or something like that. Just use the money. Just don't use it for your truck. Yeah. What's the third rule of five? So just limit your content, limit the amount of words that actually go on your truck wrap. Right. So that's another challenge where you see uh, owners just putting so much information like sales, service, installation, like really sales, service, installation. Like you don't think everyone understands that you do sales, service and installation. You're a heating and air conditioning company or residential and commercial. OK, terrific. Now you just said we work for everyone. OK, did we even need to say that? Like, why do I need to say that? So, you know, free estimates. Well, you know, like stuff like that, like is not helping your brand. It's coming at the expense of your brand. Literally, the only things that you should have on there is your brand, website address, maybe a phone number. At this point, we're like 50-50 on whether or not we're even including a phone number on, on the vehicle. It's much easier for someone to type in your URL and get your phone number that way or use their, their digital, you know, their, their phone to do it. Um, and maybe a tagline, you know, so just really, really limiting distilling, right? So the idea of branding is distilling into its simplistic form, most simplistic. Remember, this thing's driving by. How much information do you think people are going to be able to digest driving by at 50 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour? Even parked on your neighbor's driveway, how much How much do you think they can read? I think that this goes back to your earlier comment about uh, outdoor advertising isn't direct response. So like nobody... Mm -hmm. A very, very low percentage of people are seeing the thing, seeing the vehicle, picking up their phone right away and dialing the number for the free estimate because that's what it's said to do on the van. You're leaving an impression right. so that when later on when they do remember, you know what they might do? They might just snap a photo. Ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to – my, my AC right. crapped out. I got to get this done before the weather gets hot. Let yeah. me just snap a photo of this. I'll call these guys later. But that right. so that's why you're saying it's almost when it comes to the information that goes on there, because of the the desired purpose and outcome of this, you're you're minimalistic about what you include on the vehicle. Yeah, because the the, the less things that are on there, the more the more impact it actually has. When you crowd it with a whole bullet list and laundry list, you diminish the value of each one of those items. It's kind of counterintuitive. Um, you, I, th I think a yeah, novice, a novice brand person, a novice marketer would be, they'd be compelled where it's just like, well, um, you know, we are, we do all these things. I want to list them all out. So people know, and you, you're saying that's right. actually the wrong way of going about it. Yeah. And, and I think even, you know, if you're an owner and you're not sure of this theory and next time you're driving on the interstate and you see a bunch of billboards, Look at them and tell me how much of it you can read in the time it takes you to pass the billboard. 
Like, it's not rocket science. There's a reason why billboards have the least amount of content on them. It's really right. no different than vehicles. Right, right. Your um, Okay, so so what should be on it? You're saying website address, phone number, obviously the brand and name and your colors and your sort of logo and iconography and whatever you've put there. But as far as the actual information on it, it's it's not that much. No, and, and, and some people have to put a bunch of crap on there because their branding doesn't say anything right. at all about what they do. It's ambiguous, right? So, so again, the weaker the brand, the more content. It's funny, I have like a, a meme we made and it says the weaker the brand, the larger the phone number is on your truck, right? And you think about that, <laughs> but it's true. That's right? funny. That's so true because I got nothing else <laughs> to know? put there. Yeah, it's like, well, we got to put the phone number really big. Well, why? Why do you got to put the phone number really big? Because you have a weak brand. Like there's no reason why anybody would remember it, right? So like it's that's really a telltale sign if your truck wrap. If on your truck wrap right now your phone number is bigger than your brand name, then you've got a problem. Like that's a problem. Hey, what about QR codes? I've seen a couple with QR codes. Mm-hmm. Is there, yeah, is I keep getting asked about QR codes. It's really kind of funny. So I, I was actually driving behind – um, a van that had a QR code a um, couple couple of months ago, and my daughter was actually driving. So I said, let me just try this little experiment, right? So she's driving, and I got my phone out, and I'm trying to like scan the code while while driving. Now I'm the, I'm the passenger at this point, and I'm trying to do that. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, what are we really expecting to happen here? The the person that's driving behind you, I'm expecting them to while they're driving to be using a, and then people say oh no it's for when it's parked in a parking lot well if, it, if it's parked in a parking lot then i don't understand wh- why they couldn't just use the url at that point or the right. phone number if like so i'm i'm we've yet to put a qr code on on a truck ride we keep getting asked should we put a qr code i'm not a fan of it because i think the logistics invite challenges and really invite an, an unsafe atmosphere especially if someone's trying to do it while they're actually driving that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. It's kind of gimmicky. I, I like. I feel like it's. Uh, I. I don't love the look. It's sort of a. You've got this nice. Be- if you've invested, you've got this nice, beautiful brand, and then you have this big square where it's just friggin' binary code, and we're all kind of tired of QR codes at this point, anyway. So okay, so no on the QR codes. The fourth thing. Um, the fourth rule you talk about, and I think we touched on it earlier, but it's it's designed to stand out, not fit in. Is there anything else you mm-hmm. want to flush out there? Yeah, just, just you know, colors are a really important part of that equation, right? So anytime you're thinking about building a disruptive truck wrap within your community, make a, you know, a mood board or something or, or a board of all your competitors and print out pictures of their truck wraps and put them all on a board and then figure out what the commonality is among all of them. And then try to figure out if you were building a brand in this particular market, what colors could you use that aren't being represented by all these other guys? So can I build a brand that anytime the consumer sees the combination of these three unique colors or these two unique colors, they will only associate those colors with my brand and not the brands of my competitors? It's one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of red, white, and blue for in terms of using it as a brand color. And people say, oh, well, like I'm really you know, patriotic. Okay. Well, that's cool. Like I, I'm patriotic too, but at the end of the day, I can't get you to look at my brand colors being red, white, and blue and only think about me when I see those colors, right? So that's kind of a challenge with using colors like that. It's even the, you know, just the commonality of using red, white, and blue because HVAC owners think that that represents heating and cooling. Well, yeah, it, it does represent heating and cooling, but it's also the same colors that probably 10 of their competitors are using also. So wh- why would Mrs. Jones remember my red, white, and blue brand in my community if everyone else is using the same one? So we just try to look and try to pick colors that we think we can own in any given market because it's much likely to be as soon as they see this van coming towards me or they see the van parked in a neighbor's driveway, they will only think about our company as opposed to everyone else's. So you guys take, I mean, are you literally doing a Google search of competing service providers in the postal codes that this person operates in? And are you literally like, hey, they use this color of red, they use this color of blue, Mm -hmm. they use this color of orange, these are all ruled out, we need to find something else. It's that analytical. Correct. 
Correct. Yeah, we we are literally like asking them, give us the top 10 competitors in your market and then we'll research it from there. Right. I want to know what their vans look like. I want to know what their brand strategy looks like. Are they using a mascot? Are they not using a mascot? Are they using a superhero? Like, what are they doing? Right. This way I can make sure that the strategy that we're going to deploy in that market is uniquely identifiable to them only. That's really interesting. I, I don't know if that level of thought is being put into most brand packages at that early of a stage. Um, and but that, it doesn't require like it like it's like you can it's do not that. Hard. Even no, no, we, I, I know. No money. Like it's, now yeah. that you say it, it seems like such an obvious step. I'm just saying like, you know, how long does it take to do that? Probably 30 minutes. Okay, these are the 10. Here are the websites. Here are the colors. What's left on the board? Well, we could do this, that, or the other thing. These are all options. What's our favorite? Let's do that one. Like it's so it's so obvious, but I don't I don't think it's that's why it happens, which is why, by the way, every city in North America has like four precision painters, eight like <laughs> greenscapes landscaping. You know, yep. 10 construction companies that start with a certain yeah. set of initials and they all look and feel and sound the same. Um, that's really interesting. OK, so the what's the fifth thing? What's the fifth rule on these five rules for a great truck wrap? Just keep it very, very simple, easy to discern, easy to read and easy to understand. Right. So so don't don't create these images um, or these wraps that are really, really hard to read like legibility is one of the most critical aspects for effective truck wraps and i think again that early experience i had actually hand lettering things on the side of a van and and stepping back from it and saying that's legible i can read that from this distance or this distance right so understanding contrast understanding how backgrounds play a role um, and foreground plays a role, right? Those are all like really fundamental wrap design concepts. Like I actually teach wrap design to sign companies. That's one of the things we talk about. But so many really don't understand the concept of foreground and background. And, and so they'll, they'll do something that assaults you mm. and it's so busy I can't figure out what to focus on next. So you notice, you'll notice if you look through our body of work, the brand name is always very legible. It's always in the foreground. It's not sitting in the background. I don't have elements in the background that are competing for your attention because then I don't have a focal point. I am using colors and graphics to try to create disruption, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that um, I don't want to put a pink and purple polka dot van in your market, that would be disruptive, right? Everyone would say they see my pink and purple polka dot van, but it wouldn't be delivering brand promise at the same time. So just be be careful of the idea of disruption for the sake of disruption and make sure that you're doing something that still delivers brand promise at the same time. So again, simple, easy to read. Legibility is so important. Like if you look at it on your phone as a thumbnail and you can't read it at that point, like you take a picture of your van and you're looking at a thumbnail and I can't read the name of that company. How do you think in an outdoor environment, someone's going to be able to read that from 50 feet away? They won't. They won't. So like legibility, simple, clean, making sure that the text is easy to discern and legible. That's um, that's really interesting. I, I've done two fairly significant brand projects now. We did a rebrand of Breakthrough Academy, not a name change, but a, a new brand package, new brand package, new logo, new colors, et cetera. And then we built out this Contract Revolution brand. And, um, you know, we, we work with a guy named Noel Fox. He's been on the show. He's, he's, a, he's a good friend and colleague. And uh, my experience working with him is, is exactly what you say. I, you know, being entrepreneurial, you are always like, hey, can we pack this in? Can we put this other thing in? You, there's like this desire to kind of squeeze it all in. And the conversation is pretty much always the same, which is like, uh, no, no, guys, like this is enough. Like this right here, like this is enough. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you stop trying right. to like squeeze in this thing or yeah. this, this image or this. It's like this is plenty. And he's been right yeah. time and time again. So this simple, clean, legible kind of rule is just a good one to follow. And any yeah. good brand guy worth their salt or girl is going to tell you the exact same thing. Yeah. And let me give one other tip that you can – any of the viewers can use is basically take a photo of your existing truck wrap, bring it into your phone obviously, and then just convert it to grayscale. Convert it to black and white. And tell me if you still have enough contrast to read the lettering on that, right? And the reason why you convert it to grayscale is that that will give you the tonal values 
of everything that's on that particular truck. So in a low light situation, like when it's dusk, when you don't have perfect lighting, will you ever be able to actually read the wording on this Right. So that's a very, very simple thing that that, you know, often like people ask my opinion, hey, what about this truck wrap? And all I'll do literally is just take it into Photoshop, convert it to grayscale and send it back to him and say, what do you think? Can you read any of this? And it's like very, very obvious. And I teach designers this all the time, like when they're designing something, convert it to grayscale and tell me if you can read it. Tell me if there's enough contrast between the tones, because that's how tones are communicated through colors. You got to make sure that it has that legibility going on. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I find design so fascinating. I find the work that you do in your agency does like, it's not how I'm like, it's just when I like, there's just stuff I can't wrap my head around how you do. One of those things is like how deeply considered the different use cases and environments, like who's thinking of what does this wrap look like at dusk? I definitely am not, but these are like, these are the angles that need to be considered to kind of maximize the opportunity. That is the real estate on your vehicle. Yeah. You have this, um, you have this line in the book. I can't remember if it's the beginning or the end, but it, this seems like a good place to kind of close this out. Dan, you say complacency is everywhere. What does that idea mean to you? So, you know, we definitely talk in the book about the idea of brands being like old brands for owners being like a warm blanket to them. Right. So so they've got this brand. It's taking them to where they are today. OK. And and so the idea of changing that is really hard for them because they also look at it as the reason why they got to where they are today. So so they say, well, why would I ever change my brand? Um, look at how successful we are today. Um, and I like to flip that when I know it's a poor brand. Like so maybe you do have a good brand and maybe it doesn't need to change. But let's say for argument's sake, you have a poor brand. Um, I like to say instead, well, it's amazing what you've been able to accomplish with what you have. Like that tells me you run a great operation. That tells me you you are doing so well running the company and managing people and and all those things. But imagine maybe what you could be right now if you had a better brand. Mm -hmm. How would that affect your recruitment? How would it affect your marketing spend? Um, how would it affect culture? Um, you know, you could take Tommy Mello as an example. Tommy Mello came to us when he was at $40 million in revenue or $30 million in revenue. Um, and listen, by, by, all, by all benchmarks, Tommy was killing it, right? There was no real reason why Tommy logically needed to change, but he knew what he had wouldn't get him to where he wanted to go, right? So we rebranded him. I think it was at this point, I think it was three years ago when we rebranded him. Um, and, you know, maybe he's two, three hundred million at this point. Like, you know, I don't even know anymore. It's, it's crazy numbers. But, um, you know, he knew at that point and it wasn't an ego. You know, you know, Tommy, like he's not like that. He's all about doing what he thinks he needs to do to move the company forward. So I get it. Like what you've used up until this point has gotten you there. I respect that. Like I understand that. I understand like how important that brand was to you and what it means to you. Okay. But there's something probably that we could be doing that would be even better. And you, and then once you do it, like you'll never look back and say like, listen, we, we do like 200, 250 brands a year. Wow. Okay. I don't think I've ever had a client that we've ever rebranded look back on the experience and say, I'm sorry we did this. Right. It's always, I wish I had done this sooner. Mm -hmm. That's the refrain from almost every single contractor that we rebrand. I wish I had done this sooner. And it's not just because how well it's working. It's because how much further along they think they would have been if they had just done it sooner. Right. So that's that's a very, very common thing that we hear is I wish I had done this sooner. And it's, you know, obviously, even the bigger you get, the more expensive it is to actually rebrand. Right. Because you've got to redo trucks. You've got more to redo trucks uniforms, to website yeah. like, you know, there's a lot of stuff involved in, in, in a rebrand. Like we don't take that lightly. But, you know, we like the way I look at it, like we change lives with the rebrands. And I think that that's the most amazing thing about what we do here. And what I love about what we do is we get to change people's lives with 
building a better brand for their business. And that's just, you know, an amazing responsibility. Like Gettle is one of the largest HVAC companies in the country. We, we rebranded Gettle when they were $7 million. Yeah. And I think they're $500 million now or something like that. Think about how many lives were impacted by that, how many jobs got created. And it's not 100% because of the work we did, but that was that was the catalyst for so much growth for so many of these companies. And that's just, that's what I love about what we do. Like it's 27 years later, I still love that part of what we do. Yeah, and I think I think there are hidden benefits that aren't immediately obvious to someone who's at that point too. I mean, I, like yeah. if I can just talk about us for a second, I mean, the the level of candidate that we get in our hiring funnels and the level of engagement and buy-in and excitement level to like, you know, we like we're we're a different business. We're not we're not a construction business anymore. But then again, all of the yeah. construction businesses that we work with who have done this, all of the home service businesses that we work with who have done this talk about the same phenomenon, which is you have people DMing you on Instagram being like, I see what you guys are up to. Like this looks sick. Can we can we grab a coffee? Can I learn a little bit more? I see you guys are growing. Maybe there's an opportunity. So what this does to a, your employer brand, we that's a whole other episode, but like that's part of this yeah. as well. Yeah. I, I And I think to your point, that is the thing that a lot of companies don't realize when they initially come to us is they come to us because they want more customers. A, new, a new brand. They want a truck wrap. And then they go through the experience and they're like, oh my God, like I didn't realize how this was going no. to affect culture in the organization and what it's done for culture, what what a positive effect it's had. People are proud to wear the swag. They're proud to drive the trucks. They're proud to work here. You know, all those things go into it. And that's sort of the thing that, you know, like I said, they realize it after, but it's not usually people don't come to us and say, hey, we want to get a new brand because we want a better culture. Like yeah. they don't usually start the conversation that way, but they realize that subsequently how much of a role the brand has played in culture. Um well, we will leave it at that, but really quick, Dan, just t tell us a little bit about your team. Like, like we didn't really talk about kick charge. Like, what are you guys up to? Where are you located? You do 250 brands a year. H how do you do that? And just give us a high level overview of you guys and what you're up to over there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're a branding agency for home service companies. Um, we are, we've been doing this for about 27 years. I started the company. We have um, a little over 20 people here. Um, I have five full-time brand developers that work with me. We have four, uh, four or five graphic designers. We have content writers. We have a naming team. We do a lot of naming. We'll probably name 50 home service companies this year, I would say, uh, which is a lot of fun. Like I love when we get to do naming because then you're building a brand from scratch, which is just, just a lot of fun. You can be super creative at that point. Um, and, you know, again, like the people here – a lot of them came from bigger agency backgrounds that they felt like their work wasn't making a difference in, you know, doing work for Verizon or Campbell Soup or whatever you would whatever. But they come here and they know that our work has a direct impact on the people um, that we're blessed to work with. So um, I really love, you know, seeing the effect that our work has and, um, you know, just really grateful to work in this industry and, and to, you know, work with such amazing entrepreneurs every day. Like that's just you know, we're so lucky to be able to do that. I'm really grateful for that. It's a lot of fun. The book is called Branded, Not Blanded. Uh, Dan Antonelli, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to leave some links so that if you're still listening, you want to check out Dan and his work and Kick Charge. Uh, you click those and you go do that. Thanks a lot for your time, buddy. This was really enlightening. Thanks, brother. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, if you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it.